0: your way to Philippians chapter 3 I'm gonna start earlier in the text uh, just to kind of provide us with that context that is so very important Uh, so I'm gonna read uh, 1 through 11 even though we're looking at 7 through 11 Uh, finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, but is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, Paul wrote this. Uh, We thank you that he wrote this for a reason. Uh, Help us to understand that reason, but also remember that that reason still exists. Maybe not in the same um, ways it existed then, but it still exists. And set us free from hearts that long to cling to gain these earthly things that we accomplish or that we have by birth, and help us to rest in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Reformation Day, or most of us are familiar with Why we celebrate that and the beginnings of why we celebrate that. Martin Luther, you know, tacking up the 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg because he wanted to have a discussion. He was very frustrated over the presence of Johann Tetzel, who was selling indulgences in the area. He was very frustrated over a lack of understanding about what repentance was really about. And that's really what the 95 Theses dealt with. It was not a question of justification or how one comes into a right relationship with God at that point. It was focused on these manifestations of that error within the church of Rome. How the misunderstanding and therefore the practice of indulgences where you were able to pay money and get out of purgatory earlier or pay money and get your loved one out of purgatory earlier. It was really about... Their misunderstanding of repentance as if it was an act that took place for but a moment and was somehow made sacrifice for sins that were committed after baptism. The question, the real question of justification would come later. And it's easy for us to think that those problems have gone away. But those problems still exist. The church still sells indulgences. That hasn't changed. Maybe they don't sell them with the drama of a Johann Tetzel anymore or with the fervency, nor with the publicity, but the church still does sell indulgences. People still misunderstand what repentance is and are basing their relationship with life, with Christ, on the wrong things. And so Paul It's a warning to the Philippian church rang true for the people of Martin Luther's day, but it also should ring true for our day. We still struggle with these things. And so as we kind of work through verses 7 through 11, we're going to do it again with these questions that Paul basically answers for us through the course of this passage. And because he's dealt with uh, these privileges and uh, these accomplishments uh, there 's the question that it comes to my mind that Paul seems to address: What is the value of our privilege and achievements and remember Paul, and I stressed them when I was reading it, Paul focused on a few things uh, because that 's what the Judaizers were focused on the fact that Paul was circumcised on the eighth day as a proper Jew, the fact that Paul was a israelite not only any old israelite but he was from the tribe of benjamin the only one that was faithful to the davidic king and that paul himself was a hebrew of hebrews he understood hebrew he was not just of the bloodline but he was also of the culture and so he had these advantages or these privileges and these were the very things that his opponents, that he was afraid would come and, and ruin the church in Philippi, were boasting about because their confidence was in the flesh. But it's not just about advantages. We see that Paul is also stressing three accomplishments, the fact that he was a Pharisee, the fact that uh, he was a persecutor of the church because he was so zealous for his identity, and the fact that uh, according to the law, he was blameless, and so he had not only these things that he had by birth to boast about, but he had these things of you know, things he did that he could possibly boast about to say that I am known by God because of these things, that I am in a right relationship with God because of these things. But that's not where Paul ends his argument. And thankfully, that's not where God left Paul, but a shift happened, and we see it kind of expressed in three different ways, but we're, but using the same words often the times, Whatever gain I had, I have counted as loss. See all of these things that the Judaizers are boasting in, whatever I used to boast in, Paul says. I now count as loss. Uh, his, his thinking has shifted. His mental calculus has changed. Things that were gain are now loss. Things that were beneficial are now detrimental. Things which he thought were good are now bad. This is a complete reversal of what he had been thinking. We see that, and, I, and this is one of my frustrations. This is actually a, a perfect tense in that first sentence. I have counted for loss. It's something that he did in the past, but it has present consequences. There's still loss. He hasn't gone back to the old way of thinking. And he stresses that in the second way that he expresses it by putting this in the present tense. He goes, I count everything as loss. Now, He's saying the same thing. He slightly changes it up. But remember, repetition. He wanted them to understand this and to understand this clearly because it was so important. Not only did he count these things as loss, but he wanted the Philippians to count these things as loss. To not rest in the things the Judaizers wanted them to rest in And also, not to rest in the things that their culture wanted them to rest in. Roman citizenship, for instance. I count everything as loss. Do they get it? Do we get it? This word loss is significant. We find it two times in Acts 27, and both of them have to do with the shipwreck. Something valuable, your cargo, that's your living right and now it becomes loss not in the terms of you lose it but you're willing to lose it so that you might save your life and that's what happened the ship is run aground it's it's losing it's gaining water and it's starting to sink and what do you throw over so that you don't die so that you don't drown all those things you formerly thought were valuable the cargo tossed over that you might live. And so what Paul is basically saying here is that cargo of my life, the privilege I experienced, the accomplishments that I, that I had uh, you know, achieved and gathered together, all of that is, is the cargo of my life, and now I'm seeing that I have to throw it overboard. That's the picture that Paul wants us to have. And for a third time, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Okay, he he shifts it a little bit and adds this, count them as rubbish. He kind of ups the ante. Not only are they something that's hindering me from, from this, but they're rubbish, not just loss, not just damage, not just detrimental, but this idea of, of rubbish is that they are worthless and they are filthy. The word scubala, particularly in the plural, which it is, is often used of poop. Yes, the pastor just said that. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that if you, you know, in Paul's day, if you said that, it, whether it was another word. That, uh, we don't, that people tend not to say uh, you know, in mixed company or with younger people hanging around. But poop, there's something completely wrong with it. It's not just unnecessary or unhelpful, uh, but as I said, kind of worthless and filthy. Tuesday night, we went to uh, someone's house, great meal uh they had a they this family hosted a bunch of us pastors and their wives and so we had a great time of fellowship and they have a home they have a pizza oven in their house okay so they made some homemade pizzas and uh they were really interesting combinations there was a, a carne asada one that was, that was really really good keep that in mind in a moment uh, and there was a, uh, the one with, I can't remember if it was figs or dates, and it had bacon, and it was really, really good. Both, both of these pizzas were, were excellent pizzas, and I was quite excited about them. Well, they, they came second and third. The first one was one I was not as excited about, and that's because it had an egg on it, and I don't like egg, and it wasn't just any egg. It was like a fried egg, and so I saw it coming. This is my worst nightmare. (laughs) There goes the pizza cutter. And there goes that runny yolk. And not just over the pizza, which I knew I could, you know, I, I just have to not have that pizza. I just have to eat some salad and wait. But you know what? That pizza cutter has yolk on it. And that, in my eyes, not everyone else's. I was the only one who had this problem. In my eyes, it would defile the good pizzas. And so I saw Phil Cruz start to take that pizza cutter when the, when the one with the carne asada showed up. No! <laughs> I didn't want him to defile it. That's what Paul is saying about these things that he thought were so precious and important that he would have people tossed into jail for because they lacked, he's now saying, unclean, keep away, don't want to touch it. It's similar to to what we find in Isaiah 64 where uh, Isaiah writes, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We will all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the winds take us away. That the things we think are so great are really garbage. Now, when we think about this shift in his thinking, and his, his mental calculus, and how he, uh, you know, it, it all is connected to, first, for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing worth, secondly, of knowing Christ Jesus, and for his sake. And so all of this, this turnabout takes place for the one he rejected, Jesus himself. It was on the road to Damascus, as we mentioned last week, and again, we're going to mention this repeatedly this week. It's on the road to Damascus that Paul sees Jesus as far greater in value than all of these things he used to treasure. That the one that he hated ends up becoming the one that he loves. Because the one that he hated... Came looking for him, not to destroy him, but to change him, to love him, to make himself known to him. His advantages, Paul's advantages, Paul's accomplishments had previously gotten in the way of Paul knowing Christ Jesus, the Son and the Savior. And now Jesus strips him of these things so that he can know Christ the Son and Savior. But that's where it kind of bounces back on us because, you know, we're just like Paul before his salvation. Oh, there are things that sometimes we consider of surpassing or superior worth to Jesus. That we, we don't want to give up certain privileges. We don't want to give up certain accomplishments. We want to bring them with us when we come to Jesus, and we can't. We have to see them for what they really are, and we can't do that unless God shows us. It was, it was Jesus on the road to Damascus who showed Paul this. It wasn't something Paul figured out for himself. And so we see it's similar to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, for the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light went on because God turned the light on, not because Paul turned the light on. It wasn't because Paul was so much smarter and had an aha moment. It was because Jesus showed up and revealed the truth to him, despite himself. It was the grace of God, not the wisdom of Paul, that was at work in this new assessment of his accomplishments and his advantages. And so to kind of answer that question of that value of privilege and and achievements uh, compared to knowing Jesus, these privileges and accomplishments, or advantages and achievements, accomplishments, they're worthless compared to knowing Jesus. Well, if these things that we tend to boast of um, have no value, is there any hope of being in a right relationship with God? Or maybe kind of putting it a slightly different way, why does knowing Jesus matter? Paul found all, remember again, just to emphasis, Paul has found everything that he rested in Everything that he boasted about, everything that he valued was loss and rubbish and knowing God. How can one gain Christ? To so look at this text, we see that there are some uh, parallel phrases. And to, to gain Christ means to be found in Christ or to be united to Christ. How is it that one gains Jesus? How is it that one is found in Jesus? Or another third complementary term in this series how does one know Christ? Now that's very important. Knowing somebody, knowing and being known. Uh, few years before one of my professors, Dr. Nicole, passed away. I had gone on the RTS campus, and I was in the library. And keep in mind here, he was my advisor my first year in seminary, so we had many conversations. I asked him to look at some stuff I had written and give me his feedback. Now, that didn't happen because he procrastinates, uh, or did. He doesn't anymore because he's with Jesus. I had him for classes, and they were not large classes, all of them. And sometimes, and for some of them, there were oral exams. And so I would sit one-on-one with him in his office, and he would ask me questions. Okay, he knew who I was. And there I am in the library, Doctor Nicole. It's Steve Cavallaro. I know Steve Cavallaro, and you are not Steve Cavallaro. My professor didn't realize I was me. I was not known by this man, if you want to put it that way. Almost every year, my experience at General Assembly is I go up to one of my former classmates and go, Hey, how are you doing? And they're like, Who are you? (laughs) Okay. We don't want that rejection or that... um, unrecognizability. Because when we're not recognized, we're not welcome, we're not brought into fellowship. And that's the question that's right here. Who is welcomed by God? Who is welcomed by Jesus? Because not only do they know Jesus, Jesus knows them. So instead of it it being, hey, Dr. Nicole, I don't know who you are. It's welcome. It's great to see you. Come and enjoy all that I've prepared for you. That is what we're talking about. That kind of welcome. Okay? Because eternal life, as as it says in John 17, you want to know what eternal life is? This is it. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Is knowing God important? Yes. It's the whole reality of eternal life. Apart from knowing God, there is no eternal life in His presence. So, this is an important question. How do we know God? Now, when Paul was outside of Christ, when he had not yet gained Christ, he discovered eventually that it was not a righteousness of his own by the law. Jesus is not impressed with our record of obedience. However impressed we might be with our record of obedience. You see, remember that statement. As according to the law, blameless. Paul's um, relative righteousness was Pretty high. Compared to you and me, he was righteous. But the fact is, is that objectively, his righteousness was lacking. Put it this way. I was uh, sitting in the lobby of the local elementary school this past week. No, I hadn't gotten in trouble with the principal. (laughs) You might think that. So uh, I'm sitting there, and and some of the administrators are talking, and they're on the phone with somebody. And it turned out that the entire, well, I won't name the grade, an entire grade of students had flunked a standardized math test. Now, thankfully, our, our math teachers aren't here anymore. They would be in shock and awe. The average was 33. Now, you could have been one of those kids who had a 60. And relative to the one that had a 10, or a 20, or a 30, or a 40, you did really good. And you might boast in the fact that you did so much. I did three times better than my friend Joe, but you still failed. And that's the point. We tend to look at the, and you always find that other person, I'm three times better than so-and-so as opposed to the real standard I've failed to meet. Tim Keller notes, that not, we cannot simply, or it's not simply enough for us to be told that we fail. But there are times when we must be shown that we are we have failed, and since we we need to see the messiness of our sin, um, people can't just be told and this is probably one of the things that's helpful in evangelism, Uh, don't just simply tell people they're a sinner, but show them how sin has made a mess of their lives. Uh, Whether it's relationally, whether it's professionally, uh, whatever it is, there is going to be estrangement somewhere. Because that's what sin does. It produces alienation, estrangement, hostile relationships, and maybe help them to see that. So the conversion ends up actually being a very sort of painful thing because we we have to face the ugliness of who we are, and and no one likes that. I don't like that. Precisely because one of the ways that our sinfulness manifests itself is in self-righteousness. And it's hard to have the mask of self-righteousness taken away from us. I'm reminded of the picture of Dorian Gray. If Anyone remember that old novel? Oh, a couple English people said yes. And he had a picture made of himself. And he had made an arrangement with the devil so that all of the sins that Dorian committed in his very licentious lifestyle would not show up on Dorian himself, but would show up on the picture, the painting. And so whenever he sinned, the painting got more and more distorted and ugly and hideous, such that he couldn't put it in his living room where you might think of putting a portrait of yourself. He had to hide it in his attic, And it was when he went up there that he would realize what a horrible person he was, but he had to hide it from everybody, lest they would know his secret. And that's, in a sense, us in many ways. Luther, for instance, had to learn that the solution to his sin was not trying harder. It was not fasting longer not, or fasting more often. It was not about you know, having a, a longer marathon of confessing his sins to his confessor. It was not about beating himself. He had to learn that 1 Timothy 1.15 was true, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst not just the I am the worst part, but the Jesus came to save sinners, that part. It's all right to be found a sinner if you realize Jesus has come to save people just like you. He didn't come to save the righteous. He didn't come to save the people who have it all together. He came to save sinners. And so Luther ended up, after the Reformation began, having what's called his tower experience, thanks in part to um, the help of Philip Melanchthon since he was the Greek scholar amongst the two friends and realizing um, that the righteousness from God that depends on faith is what he needed it was not speaking about the righteousness of God in terms of God's righteousness that which he possesses which scared Luther because he knew himself to be a sinner but in fact it was the righteousness that finds its source in God that he gives to people and now all of a sudden the gospel became the good news that it actually is, that, that the source of our righteousness is not ourselves, but it is God himself. We receive it by faith, and thats we have to be very clear. Faith itself isn't our righteousness. Faith simply receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is offered to us freely by him. What is faith? If it's not righteousness, what is faith? And I'll remind you of uh, Packer's definition from knowing God just uh, because I find it so helpful that faith is a self-abandoning trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's a self-abandoning of my advantages and of my accomplishments and I'm resting completely upon Jesus and what he has done. Alec in speaking of, on this uh, topic in this passage, says that it is leaning heavily on Christ and that the idea of someone who's carried by another, whether it's a soldier who's been wounded in battle and can't leave the field of battle or an athlete who has been hurt on the field and can't get up under his own power and will get off the field, and that other person comes alongside and lifts him up and kind of carries them on the shoulder, who's bearing the weight? It's the healthy person. The other one only looks like they're bearing weight as they're basically dragged off the field. Jesus comes to us and carries us, and faith is simply leaning into him while he carries us. Here's sort of how this plays out. Paul is speaking against this idea that we're righteous out of the law and therefore gain union in Christ. What he is advocating is the fact that we have union in Christ and because we're united to Christ by grace through faith, we are then declared to be righteous, not guilty. Zechariah, which we had read earlier this, in the service, uh, points to that. You have uh, Joshua, the great priest, the high priest. He's in filthy rags, and there's Satan accusing him. And God says, shut up, in nicer terms than that. Has the filthy robe removed and the clean robe of the high priest placed upon him? And so it is for each of us. When we're trusting in Christ, the the words of the accuser are silenced. Our filthy robes have been removed, and righteous robes, clean robes, unblemished robes are placed upon us. Robes that Jesus earned for us, not robes that we have earned for ourselves. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism in defining justification says that it is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins. So there's forgiveness and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed or accounted to us and received by faith alone. So pardoned but also declared as righteous, as if we were obedient, because Jesus was obedient for us. So God knows us. We don't get that unexpected surprise of lack of recognition when we say hi. He accepts us and receives us because of what his Son did for us in perfectly obeying the law and in dying on the cross for our sins so here's, here's the interesting thing about faith. You can't hold on to Jesus and your advantages and accomplishments at the same time. You have to let go of one to hold on to the other. They're mutually exclusive. And so the, to answer that second question we asked, Jesus gives us his righteousness so we are accepted by God when we believe. Well, there's a third question I think that's really important that this text touches on. And that third question is, is Christianity just about a change in status? And that was what ended up being one of the controversies with regard to the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church was saying, oh, that doctrine of justification by faith alone, that's dangerous stuff. Why will people obey? And oddly enough, when the Mormon missionaries came to my door, that's exactly what they said to me. <laughs> Same thing grace, why would people obey? Well, Paul doesn't stop with this reality of justification. But let's talk about justification just for a second. Justification means that we are forgiven and declared righteous despite your sin. So let's, let's, let's throw a couple in there. Despite the fact of your anger problem, or your porn problem, or your gossip problem, or your spending problem, whatever your problem is, you're declared forgiven of that. But justification does not of itself remove the, the fact that you struggle with that sin, with that problem. And so Paul says he not only wants to know Christ, but he wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to grow in his knowledge of and experience of both Jesus and that power that raised Jesus from the dead, which now is at work in us to transform us. And so there's, there's in addition to pardoning grace, there is also this thing of purifying grace and what we call sanctification. And that we cannot separate these two ultimately. Paul talked a lot about the power of the resurrection. He talked about it in Romans 6. He talked about it in Ephesians 1. This immeasurably, immeasurably great power that's at work in those who believe. And he reminds them that it's the power of his great might that worked in Jesus. You want to know an example of it? When God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the same power that's at work in all who believe that resurrection power, because we are united to Jesus Christ. And so I want to remind you that you cannot fix your anger problem. You cannot fix your porn problem. You cannot fix your gossip problem. You, You cannot fix your spending problem. But Jesus is at work in you to fix those problems. Not only does Jesus, uh, does Paul experience and know the, the power of the resurrection, but he also shares in his sufferings. And that's kind of a, a weird translation, because uh, really the idea there, it's, it, the word is koinonia, fellowship. He had fellowship In Christ's sufferings, we're we're recognizing that we too experience affliction, we too experience persecution, but Jesus is with us in them. And we see this clearly when Jesus shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus. Why do you persecute me? Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Paul was persecuting Christians. But Jesus says, me. Such is the union that we have with Jesus Christ. And we have that union with him even in our sufferings, our persecutions, our afflictions. Now, the Philippian. Christians knew about Paul's sufferings for Christ. They had seen some of them because, remember, Paul was put in jail. He was beaten at the start of the church in Philippi. But Paul knew that Jesus was going to be with him just as he was with the people he persecuted before he knew Jesus. So we have fellowship or communion with Christ when we suffer. But we also have the hope of the resurrection from the dead. Not Jesus' resurrection, but our future resurrection. That while uh, we might suffer and be persecuted, and it might mean we die, it's not the end of the story, because there is the resurrection of the dead. The cross comes before the crown. This is the pattern that's continually throughout the New Testament. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. But we only get the crown if we're united to Jesus Christ by faith. If we're fellowshipping with Jesus Christ by faith. So if we go back to that idea, of is Christianity just about a change in status? We'd have to answer that Jesus also gives us his power and fellowship in facing sin and suffering. It's about more than just justification. So a bigger idea that kind of brings all of these together, I think, is that our faith um, isn't just about forgiveness, but about living a new identity in Christ. Faith considers our personal advantages or privileges. It considers our accomplishments no longer as gain, no longer as good, but faith considers them to be loss, rubbish, detrimental in knowing Jesus and experiencing the salvation that he offers. Jesus gives righteousness to all who receive Him by faith so that they are now acceptable to the Father. Jesus also gives the power of the resurrection to fight against our sin and to sustain us in suffering. And so we have this hope in the resurrection. This life isn't all there or where we get. Well, I don't even know what I said there. (laughs) I had a moment. This life what we experience now is not the whole deal. It's not the whole enchilada. Okay? There's more. Based on his promise. And we'll get that. And so our our identity should be based on Christ our righteousness and not our own advantage and accomplishment. Let's pray. Father, um, we are prone to rely upon ourselves. Uh, we're, we're prone to see the goodness in ourselves and not recognize the, uh, the evil in ourselves. Because of our pride, we, we want to, to come to you on our own two feet and not be carried to you by Jesus. Jesus. And so I pray that, that you would continually remind us that there is only one way to come to you, and that is to be carried by Jesus. Uh, but this is a Jesus who, also tried, who successfully changes us. And so help us to live in that hope. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen.